Hello, my name is Dylan, and this is the Heroes of Reality podcast, a place where I interview heroes of reality, of life, science, technology, and more, and I share the stories, lessons, journeys, inspiring you to be the hero of your reality. And in this podcast, I interview Dr. Raina Olson. She's a quantum technology theorist and visionary. She holds three degrees in engineering, including an MS in electrical engineering, as well as a PhD in physics. As a physicist, she's worked in the fields of quantum physics, superconducting quantum computing, hydrogen storage, and structural materials. Reina is the co-founder and CEO of Aurora Quantum Technologies. Hey, Reina. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thanks, Dylan. Really excited to have you here. <laughs> Great. So this is the first time I've had a quantum engineer on the podcast, um, and I would love it if you could please explain just a little bit of what a quantum engineer does and your background in the field. Well, uh, you know, quantum engineers are a really new thing, so <laughs> uh, most people haven't met one. Um, like, you know, engineers are people who make practical devices, mm-hmm. uh, you know, things that do things that are useful for us. Um, and I actually started my, you know, career in engineering, uh, in computer engineering, actually. Um, and. Uh, you know, uh, engin- or computer engineering is just a fascinating field because, mm-hmm. you know, uh, computers are so functional these days. We don't really think about how freaking complicated all the things that went into it is. But, you know, there's 50 years of engineering in there yeah. uh, that took it from something that, you know, could just do some simple math to something that has all this amazing functionality. And there's so many parts in a in a computer, you know, at all different levels of abstraction. Um and so it's really amazing to learn about all those things. Uh, very much so. It's very much like the uh, we're standing on the shoulders of giants. And often, yeah. you know, we, it's so easy for us to grab a cell phone, send an email. But, um, you know, the, the, someone said this once. I don't remember who. But they're like, you know, if you think you know how to do something, if I sent you off to the woods with an axe, how long would it take for you to come back and send an email? Right. Yeah. It's a complicated topic. And so we are just literally just standing on the shoulders of giants throughout humanity, just getting that torch passed along from person to person. And so um, it's kind of one of our superpowers as humanities is our ability to collaborate with each other, with technology throughout time. Yeah. Right. And, you know, 50 years ago, computers were, you know, just a, a new thing that maybe some businesses were using. And I, I think, you know, especially for young people today, it's you know, we don't realize how different the world was without computers. But these days, like, you know, the vast majority of our uh, economic power rests on the back of backs of computers. You know, we, we use computers not just for all the things that are obvious, like, uh, you know, collecting data if you're Google and like, you know, doing Facebook or whatever. Uh, but, you know, people are always also using computers to design circuits, to design materials, like so much of the uh so many of the things that we produce and use in our daily life, uh, we're using computers for that. Yeah, it's funny how with a lot of technologies, um, there's like, you know, the bleeding edge, right? And then there's like the adoption and it goes through that adoption curve. And so often things just turn at, start out as a theoretical science and then it turns into like a, like a hard science. Then it goes into an applied science. You're actually taking it and it's actually being useful. Like uh, virtual reality back in the day in like the 1950s was the Sensorama machine where you have this giant thing that you like, it's the size of a room that you can put your head into and it barely does anything. It's a, it was a science, but it really wasn't an applied science where it becomes like commercial 
actually adoptable until after time. So I feel like quantum uh, computing and all that is just a bit ahead of that. It's on that bleeding edge curve that isn't really practical today. Yeah, that that is exactly where quantum was and is right now, and that's why uh, you know there haven't been any quantum engineers up until now because it's just been a basic science uh, yeah. up until now, and it's only in the past five years or so that people have really envisioned making practical devices out of it. Yeah, what is those in terms of the? Uh, what do you think is the adoption path for quantum engineering? You know, where was it at? You know, a couple of years ago, and what needs to happen to kind of unleash those gates or those levels up so that it becomes an, an applied science? Well, it's very much a, a training thing. So, you know, as you get more and more commercial activity in this area, um, you're going to get more engineers being trained in this. And, you know, there really is very few quantum engineers in the world because you don't teach quantum to engineers right now. Um, and so I'm sort of an interesting person because I started in engineering and then I switched to physics for my PhD after I'd been in engineering for 10 years. Um, and, you know, the problem is, like, when I first switched into physics, uh, you know, quantum is really the thing that engineers don't know. All, all, all the sort of classical physics engineers use as well. Mm-hmm. Quantum is the thing that's really new and weird. So, um, and it is really weird and non-intuitive. Um, and, you know, my first semester when I was uh, in quantum, I felt like I made a mistake because it was, like, so weird and hard. <laughs> um <laughs> And, you know, it's, it's going to take some time to, you know, the physicists who've been doing quantum up until now are really great at sort of like discovering these basic things. Um, but if you really want to make practical devices, you need people with that engineering type brain who, you know, uh, engineers are much more intuitive. They don't need to understand every single step. And I, I like to say that physicists like to make things simple enough to understand and engineers like to make things complicated enough to work. A hundred percent. That makes a lot of sense. Normally in college, I've noticed that when people hit um, certain walls, threshold guardians, if you would, as they're going through, they'll usually step down. So physicists, physicists will go into engineering or engineering or computer science. Computer sciences will go into business. Business will go into like, like, um, you know, uh, education. And so it go usually there's a, oh, this one's hard. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step down to something that's a bit more feasible and comprehensible. But you went the other direction. You went from uh, engineering into physics. What, what what made that transition jump for you? And then what was that first? Because you said you hit something. You're like, oh, my God, I feel like I made a mistake. What, what was that? When was that moment like? What did that feel like? And what happened? Well, I'm just a stubborn person who likes challenges and I like things that are really hard. Um, and, you know, when I went into engineering, um, I really loved it. And I, you know, got a grad degree in engineering as well. And then, you know, came to the point where I needed to get a real job. And then I thought, you know, I just I want to keep learning stuff. Uh, so I decided to get my Ph.D. And at the time, you know, I, I really wanted to learn about small things, you know, things on the nanometer scale. Mm. Um, and physics seemed like more of the place to do that, to really get at the fundamental yeah, I mean, the physics is the, the basic building blocks of all of reality. And yeah. if you can understand that, I mean, it allows you to start at the base level. But it's almost like trying to learn binary and then going up to the higher level languages. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's, you understand it fundamentally, but the, the practical applications of trying to write code in binary these days is um, an arduous task. Yeah. So, you know, uh, I have a 
interesting combination of training that not many people have in both engineering and physics um, and happened to get it at this really fun time in history where quantum computing is on the cusp of being a thing. Uh, and so I'm excited that I get to spend the next 20 years of my life uh, trying to make things work that people don't totally understand. Uh, yeah. It's like a fun challenge. Yeah. While you're going on this, this journey of um, becoming a quantum engineer, you, you said you went to college and you, you felt like, oh my gosh, I don't I feel like I made a mistake. What, what, what did that montage look like for you to kind of level up to where you're at now? <laughs> well, you know, the funny thing about that is uh, I, I remember my first quantum class. Um, physics is a very different sort of um, society than engineering, let's say. Uh, so like a lot of open book tests and they try to make the test really hard so mm -hmm. that you're like really challenging yourself. And I think that's why it felt so difficult, um, you know, just because it's in engineering, they sort of design things so that, you know, 90% is an A and, you know, uh, physics just had a different mentality and it took some time to learn that mentality. And I think the place where I really realized, okay, maybe I can do this is, uh, you know, the midterm for my quantum class, they made it open book and you could actually bring seven books. <laughs> I don't know if that's actually going to help you. And well, that's the thing, because then you spend so much time looking through the book. So I only brought one book, the book we'd been using for the class, and then I actually finished way before everybody else, I think, because I wasn't <laughs> spending all my time. And then, you know, I did really good on that test, and I was like, okay, maybe I can do this. Wow. Okay. So then you, after that, you, you, you took your um, final, and you're like, okay, I've, I've got my degree in quantum engineering. Like, what... Was the next door that you went through? How did you go from there into? Because now you you've gone through Y Combinator, correct? And so, what was the journey from graduating from college to going to Y Combinator? Oh, it's you know long, complicated journey. Um, when I was in grad school, you know, I graduated in two thousand eleven. Um, nobody thought quantum computers were going to be a thing anytime soon. You know, people thought it would be a couple decades at least. Um, and then a few years ago, uh, it was starting to become more of a thing, and so. Uh, usually what people do after they graduate is they do this thing called postdoc, which is like it's it's further training after your doctorate and on your way to a real academic job. And I was doing that. And uh, so I decided to get a postdoc in, in you know, quantum technologies. Mm. Um, and then, uh, you know, sometimes life is just kind of an accident. <laughs> My uh, uh, co-founder had, uh, you know, met this group that wanted to you know, a business accelerator kind of like Y Combinator that wanted to encourage some uh, nerds to get into business. And so uh, we, went, we went and did that program together and we thought, hey, maybe we could actually do this thing. And uh, so we, you know, put the company together a little bit more and went to YC. That's very interesting. It is funny how, you know, the universe lines up in weird ways that you're like, well, it just so happened to be an accident and a series of events that kind of led me to where I'm at. But if you look back, there's actually a pattern or a through line that that is also seemingly similar similar to the um, the split experiment, right? Mm -hmm. And then because uh, how you can send out the individual photons, and then over time it seems like they're random. But if you look at it through a, along the uh, time directory, there actually makes a pattern. Yeah. Um, could you explain a little bit of what that um, split test theory is, so that people can understand it? Well, this is sort of the mystery of quantum mechanics that mm -hmm. uh, you know. There's in our sort of big macroscopic world, there's things that act more like waves, which are, you know, like waves on the water, uh, light is a wave. Um, and then there's things which are sort of like massive particles. And, you know, massive particles 
uh, take well-defined uh, paths through space, whereas waves sort of spread out all over the place. Mm-hmm. And the thing is, is when you get down to the very small, you find out that actually everything in the world is both a particle and a wave. Mm-hmm. You know, it has properties of both a particle and a wave at the same time. Um, and you can actually manipulate the wave part properties of even particles so you can make an interesting interference pattern and even if you have only a single particle you'll still get this wavy interference pattern build up over time mm-hmm. so then you somehow i mean what do you think that's about so somehow if you send this this particle through throughout time it makes a pattern and it shows that there is actually an overall um pattern that you can decipher from that uh, some people say that is just is it random chance or the things say like is there is there an underlining mechanics because there from what I understand and this was my limited knowledge from watching a couple of YouTube videos and, and the ability to try to prepare for this call to have a somewhat of a, a, a meaningful conversation with you about the topic um, there was Einstein who said that there is some underlining mechanics that we just don't see Right, and then there was another person. I think it was Heisenberg, or who said, "Well, no, that's not actually true. There's there's something else." Can you explain the difference between those two? <laughs> well, I mean, this is a debate that was going on a hundred years ago around the birth of quantum mechanics, and it's a debate that's still going on now. There's mm-hmm. different ways to think about what this actually means, um, and I, I would say that uh, there's sort of two main ways to think about it. Like uh, in our big macroscopic world, uh, we we understand the world in terms of realism and locality. So realism means that, you know, it's not just something in your mind. There's also some external reality that exists, whether you're paying Mm -hmm. attention to it or or not. And that's sort of like a basic principle of our experience of the world. Um, And the other is is locality. Um, So like you're affected the most by things that are close to you. Mm -hmm. Um, And things that are far away from you can still affect you too, but that, that has to travel, take some time to travel you. And we might not notice that because things travel at the speed of light. But you know, when you look at the sun, you're seeing something from five minutes ago, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, So what quantum says is you have to give up one of those. You have to give up locality or realism. Um, And this is kind of the debate in (laughs) about how to uh, interpret quantum mechanics. So the Einsteins of the world, they say, um, I don't want to give up realism. I believe that there's a real world out there and it really works in some way. So instead, I'm going to give up locality and say, you know, I can be affected by things on the other side of the world uh, instantaneously. Um, And then, you know, the other way is saying uh, giving up locality and, yeah, giving up realism and (laughs) keeping locality. (laughs) So, yeah. It's it's super interesting because I've always noticed that um, the 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 most honest truths are, and I've seen this in a couple of podcasts, is that it's a balance between two things at the same time. One being is you know, for example, I am I am connected. I am infinite, the size of the cosmos. Also, I am in this significant you know grain of sand. With those two forces that you're talking about, between the balance of realism and uh, and, and the locality. Is almost like if, if you look at um, the uh, meaning in life, a lot of times we apply um, certain um, meaning interpretations of situations. So, oh, I went through this and, I ma- and you made it meaningful versus, um, so uh, the, the reason why I, I help someone across the street because it's meaningful, it's meaningful to do a good thing to someone. And you're applying your own mental models of meaning into that situation versus externally, um, you are actually having the ability to have, like, 
you know, an external watching force. So what, what I'm saying by that is if you look at like the gamification of life, right? And you're saying that there's actual meaning in something, right? So you, do you apply meaning to life? Like I give it life its own meaning or is it inherently meaningful? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And so I see that balance between the two and almost makes me think of the same thing between the locality uh, versus the um, reality of life. So, And so I was just trying to see if there was a correlation between those two facets. Well, you know, the interesting thing about physics is that uh, at the base of physics is really philosophy. Um, we have a certain way that we see the world and then, mm-hmm. you know, physicists take those first principles and they try to derive, you know, uh, equations from them, right? <laughs> uh, but at the at the core of that is a philosophy about how the world works and how we experience the world. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of physicists don't like to, you know, they like to say, oh, we got quantum all figured out, but we, we really don't because we don't know what those first principles are. We don't know what those lessons about the world um, you know, that you can derive quantum from are yeah. yet. Yeah, it seems like the the more theoretical a science, the more it becomes an art and an art of perspective. Yeah. And just applying that that perspective against the science gives you some sort of um, speculation or hypothesis of the way it works. And then you try to apply science backwards to say this is fundamentally true or inherently not. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, like... Um, you know, one example of that is is uh, Einstein, you know, his famous E equals MC squared equation. He actually mm-hmm. wasn't the first person to write that down. Um, however, he was the really? first person to say, we'll just take these basic assumptions. For instance, light always travels at the speed of light. Mm-hmm. And from that, we'll derive E, e equals MC squared. Um, and he, he was the first person to really give, you know, a meaning to that equation that uh, somebody else found that just worked. Well, that's interesting because he was able to do that through a thought experiment. Yeah. You know, and that and that thought experiment is again first principles, with perspective, creates outcome that you can then work backwards from. Yeah, yeah, that's why physics is is uh, really fun because it's, you know, it's both philosophy and science. Yeah, yeah. yeah the 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 more you the the farther you go out, the more it's an art and and the philosophy, which is which is fascinating. Um. Nowadays, in in the world of um, that you're in, you know, what are some of the practical applications um, for quantum mechanics, quantum engineering, and where do you see that going in, in 10, 20, X amount of years out? Well, you know, quantum technologies is actually a big field. Quantum mm-hmm. computing is the, you know, big, sexy application that everybody's heard about. Uh, but there's also applications in, in sensing. So that would be, you know, fields like radar and GPS and and uh, things like that. And there's also applications in communication, so you can use it, use quantum mechanics for secure communication. Um, and then, you know, of course, uh, quantum computers work in such a different way than regular computers that you can't just take your algorithm from your classical computer and run it on a quantum computer. It, it's good for totally different set of things. Um, and so the earliest applications of quantum computers, when they um, you know exist and are big enough, will actually be design of chemicals and materials. So use it for pharmaceutical drug design and uh, for making new clean, clean, clean energy materials. And uh, there's also, you know, applications in the field of cryptography. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there's actually all these applications across the whole field of information technology that, that quantum can, you know, develop or enhance. Interesting. When Let's take these one by one. So communications. Now, is uh, quantum, is that the communication due to the, the 
the theory or the principle of quantum entanglement. Yeah. 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 So could you please explain a little bit of quantum entanglement and then how it could apply to communications? Yeah. So you, you can put, you know, a quantum particle, which could be an atom or it can be a photon, which is the smallest piece of light. You can put it in the state where it's sort of flipping back and forth between, you know, let's call it zero and one. Mm. So it's not just a light switch that's on or off. It's going back and forth. And then you can also take two of those and you do this thing that's that's called entanglement. So you don't know which state either of them is, is in, but they're both flipping back and forth between those states in a, in a correlated way. Mm. And then you can take those and separate them, you know, on the other side of the universe. And and as long as they don't interact with anything else, they'll maintain that delicate entanglement relationship where they dance together. And this is, you know, what I've been saying about locality. Realism, most people can understand, but locality, you don't really think about a lot. Hmm. But, it, you know, entangled particles, you got two things with it that might be on the other side of the planet that are acting together. And you, you can use this to set up a random encryption key. Hmm. So, you you know, I might make a pair of entangled particles and I keep one and I send one to you on the other side of the world. And then we both measure them at the same time and they will generate some random numbers. And the random numbers that you and I have will both then be correlated. So for quantum communication, we use that to set up a, a random private key that we can then use for encryption. Oh, interesting. It's like a, it's like a hash key. Yeah. So with that, what it makes me think about, and please let me know if I'm completely off base here. You have this quantum entangled particle, right? And it's and it's sending one to the other. And you're able to kind of have a corollary between the two. And then if I measure and you measure at the same time, it's kind of a, like almost like in the very uh, primitive states of um, computing in the beginning, it was binary zero, zero, or one. Could you put an array of those quantum entangled particles together to almost do a Morse code? We could set off a series of those in different states so that you could actually have a message be coming across. If this one was this one was triggered in that, then this and that. Could you put that in an array to actually come through as a message? Oh, yeah. I mean, that, that's what you do because you, you don't want your key to just be one bit, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you want your key to be, you know, say 124 bits or whatever. Yeah. So you, you so do a bunch of them. And a quantum communication network is a network that can carry those entangled particles without messing with them. A whole wow. bunch of them. Wow. So, oh, I mean, what is the size of a device that needs to do? Like, are you, like, with that thing being able to communicate, is, it, is that in the states of, like, computers in the 1950s where it's the size of a, of a house? Or is that something that somebody could have actually fit in their pocket? Uh, well, for quantum communication, I, I would say it's not quite in the pocket realm, but yeah. it's not in the closet realm either. <laughs> uh, because it uses a lot of the same optical technology that is already used for communication. So fiber optic cables and things like that. Wow. Now com- the computers, they're, they're the size of a room. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're talking about how um, the models of quantum computing is different than the models that are stored in an algorithm on a computer. How are they different and why do you need different computer types to really hold the models of a quantum computer algorithm versus the computer. Can you explain the difference between those two? Well, you also use entanglement in a quantum computer. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, when you when you have these special entanglement relationships between particles, uh, you're, here we call them qubits. So there are quantum particles. Qubits. That can be, you know, and like a, it's called a qubit because it's like a bit. It, mm-hmm. When you measure it, it will be either zero and one. Mm-hmm. But you try to put them in this delicate entanglement state where they're, you know, both of the qubits are dancing between zero and one in this random way, but that's correlated with each other. And the information is actually contained in the relationship 
between which particle is correlated with which other particle. And so you that's the algorithm. You code in the entanglement between this particle and that particle, but not that particle. And then you let them do their little dance, and then you measure them, and you get out the information. Wow. So it's a superposition of the quantum entanglement that allows you to tell the actual um, information that's being passed, and therefore you have a, an understanding of these arrays in this order, these qubits or superpositions gives you an, an output of some sort of algorithm to yeah. a degree. Yeah, you're using this, actually, it's kind of, you're trying to make an interference pattern. Mm-hmm. So rather than this, you know, with the double slit experiment, this simple interference pattern of up and down, you get a whole bunch of qubits together and they make this really complicated interference pattern. And yeah. that's how you encode and decode your problem and your result. That's fascinating. And with the quantum size, you're saying as you scale upwards, there is a certain amount of, is it the word disassociation? Or there's a terminology that when it goes from quantum to the normal state, for lack of a better term, it loses its quantumness, right? What is what is the terminology for that? And then how does, at what point does that scale pass to where you actually lose the, the quantum effects? Yeah, that's one of the big challenges of quant, uh, quantum computing. So it's decoherence. And that mm. decoherence is when that entanglement is lost. So, you know, if I have two particles and I prepare them that, that they're entanglement and then some other, you know, some light comes in and messes with them, that's going to tend to ruin the relationship they have with each other and, and set up a relationship with something else, right? Um, and that's the big challenge in, in quantum computing is, is protecting your system from decoherence for long enough that you can do that calculation. And that's actually why these things are often the size of a... Not quite a room, but they're pretty big. And that's because you need this, like, uh, refrigerator that keeps the whole system at a temperature 100 times colder than space. And you need all this shielding that protects it from radiation. Um, And a lot of the complication comes in the technology required to protect the system. Uh, so it's almost like setting up its own mini universe that is de- dis- deconnected, disconnected from the actual universe itself. Mm-hmm. What is the degree of a hundred times colder than space? Do you actually know that like number? Because I've uh, thir- thirty millikelvin is usually what they're going. Thirty millikelvin. Millikelvin. Whereas the uh, space is about two kelvin. So <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's incredible. At that level, is, is that when the, is it called super cooling, the superconductivity where you can actually have things freeze and it will actually stop at a certain, it's like um, quantum locking? Uh, well, you definitely use superconductivity. Mm-hmm. So superconductivity means there's no resistance, like the power isn't dissipated because you want, you know, you want to set it up in that state and then have it keep going in that state for a long time. Is, is that... Is that the uh, quantum locking? So then it's then locked at that that height. Because um, I've seen things where they have they pull out, and I I don't know if this is the same thing. So please correct me if I'm wrong here. But they take something that it's super cool at a certain degree, and then they're able to put an object on top of a track, and they're able to push it around where it almost looks like it's hovering in oh, the yeah. air because it's a, yeah. what is that? <laughs> I've never heard quantum locking before, but that's superconductivity, right? So superconductivity is that. Superconductors have this interesting property where they expel magnetic fields. So if you take a magnet and put it above a superconductor, mm-hmm. uh, it will sort of the superconductor will sort of push it up, and you can use that to levitate it. That's what they oh. do when they you know you put it on a track where it says a superconductor underneath, and then oh. you send it along the track and yeah. Is that oh. how I could have my hoverboard from Back to the Future? <laughs> Is because if I could take a, like a hoverboard park and have everything be super cool, could I then like sit on that and then be able to go around in circles? Or at what scale does that break? Well, 
Uh, you you could do that in principle. <laughs> uh, the problem is, you know, only if you want to be in a really cold space. <laughs> I could have my hoverboard, but I just won't have my feet afterwards. Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's good to know. What do you think are the um, what's the holy grail right now for um, quantum engineers? Like, what are, what's the pursuit that everyone's going for? Well, I think it's that perfect qubit that doesn't decohere. That's mm. what everybody's trying to make. So you're looking for a, a qubit that doesn't decohere, that you don't need a giant space to be able to separate it from its reality and the external reality, right? So that it can be basically um, completely viable. Yeah, I mean, uh, quantum computing experts would love to have something like that. I don't even know if that's possible, but... You know, the... Well, it's, it's always very hard to predict out, you know, 50 years out, the technologies that we have and some sort of, you know, ability to be able to um, have a, a new leverage of technology. You know, uh, 500 years ago, talking about artificial intelligence, that would be impossible to think of. So, yeah, I never know it's possible. That's why it's in the realm of philosophy currently. Yeah. And, and we're in a lot of these things, concepts, and I'm still trying to wrap my head around. What do you think is the, like skill tree of development if somebody wanted to become a quantum engineer what skills would they need to develop along a path in order to get and be able to kind of walk away with like you know achievement unlocked quantum engineer well i think right now you know the problem is is that you know say you're 18 and you say i really want to work on quantum computers Mm -hmm. is um there's not really a training program for quantum engineers. Uh, I do really think it's useful to have engineering skills, to have experience with making things complicated enough to work, uh, but they don't teach engineers quantum. Um, and so, you know, most likely you go into physics. Yeah, so, but you think the engineering is a good base to understand the physics of reality so that you can go into the theoretical of quantum so that you can understand how you can break it? Well, it's kind of the other way around. The physics is the sort of base of understanding quantum mechanics and then you also want to learn some engineering skills because you're you're trying to design things to work better well yeah trying to have it be applied yeah so you know like a lot of schools right now are you know starting to train engineers in quantum mechanics and stuff like that but it's sort of a it's a challenge because it's a very abstract non-intuitive subject and that's not what engineers are necessarily good at learning so (laughs) yeah you know, well, part of that is, you know, you want direct feedback. And a lot of the things about being engineering is that you you are almost speaking the language of the universe or the language of the computer where you get direct feedback. You send off a message. You can you can get that direct feedback. You're like, I'm on point. I'm not on point. And, you know, you know, it's it's, you know, the difference between, say, uh, maybe English and math. Math is much more binary in the, in the correct or wrong versus the abstract, the, the balance between the two, which, it, you know, it does get a little gray. Um what is your, what is your company? Because you're uh, graduated from Y Combinator. Um, what what is the company that um, you you're creating or you have created? And you know what's what's the mission that it, it's on that you're on? Um, so our company is Aurora Q, mm-hmm. and I uh, sort of our um, founding principle is that we need to make hybrid quantum technologies. So there's actually a whole bunch of different ways to make a qubit. There's like, you know, a dozen different ways to make a qubit at least. You know, you can make them out of atoms or you can make them out of light or you can make them out of superconducting circuits. Um, And the challenge is that each of those different implementations is good at some things and bad at other things. 
Um, and so, you know, one of the approaches is to try and, you know, use a thing for what it's good at and then compensate for its issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and we really believe the approach is to eat, put all the different types together, maybe not all of them, but a few of them, and have each one do what it's good at. Got it. Okay. So you're looking for a synergistic relationship between the different modalities of quantum engineering so that you can say that this is a, you know, a, a dance of these different, you said it was light, it was uh, atoms. atoms, and then superconducting circuits. Su- superconducting circuits. Mm-hmm. What's a superconducting circuit? Well, so a superconductor is that funny thing that can levitate stuff, right? Oh, okay. Okay. Um, and, you know, the whole point of a superconducting circuit is, you know, the current in your wall, a little bit of it is making heat. In a superconductor, you don't have that process. So none of that energy is lost to heat. And with a, with a quantum computer, you want to be able to put it in a state, and then you want it to stay in that state. And if it's losing heat, then it's not staying in that state. Got it. So it's almost like the superconducting circuit's almost always, unless, it, you know, in an, an absolute... Um, clean room, it's going to lose. It's going to lose itself. It's like a constant leaky bucket. Yeah. Right. And Just, most of the, you know, there's a bunch of quantum computing companies out there, including both startups and large companies like Google and IBM that are trying to do it. Uh, and I would say probably, a, you know, over half of those companies are doing superconducting circuits. Mm-hmm. And that's because, you know, in a lot of ways, it's similar to integrated circuits for your computer. You make them out of different stuff. You know, your computer's not superconducting. But many of the same uh, techniques can be used for that. Interesting. With that, I mean, what are the, in in the realms of, you know, I, I think with any technology, you're like, oh, being in the field, you know, that's a total bogus thing. That's a waste of time. And, and that's, a, that's a real value add, right? And so, you know, in, you know, my world of virtual reality, you're like, oh, you can, you can put a headset on, but, you know, there's things that are real value adds and the other things are just gimmicks, right? What are the games that um, companies are playing that are just, a, that you believe are a waste of time? And what do you think are the games that um, uh, companies are playing that are actually really a value add that could actually have a real impact uh, to um, society as a whole? <laughs> well, you know, here's when, where you venture into the field of opinion very much. Sure. Um, but I, you know, I would say that uh, a lot of the problem that you have in the field right now is that um, people are pursuing short-term results rather than long-term results. Uh, so, for instance, a lot of these companies are taking a technology that works at the 10 qubit level and trying to scale it up to 50 or 100 qubits, um, except we need like a million <laughs> qubits to really have a useful computer. And, uh, you know, I really think that fundamental redesign of the entire system is required before you start scaling it up. Um, and you, you know, if you follow the quantum news, you have, a, you know, every few months, the company is coming out and saying, oh, we got this many qubits now and we got this many qubits. But, you know, it's just like one or two or a dozen more qubits. And it's nowhere near what we need to really get there and so you know i think that the less sexy but more practical approach is to look at you know a fundamental redesign of the entire system that will actually work and scale up to that size Mm, got it so it's almost like you've we've been able to kind of uncover this this realm this universe but because we can see through one area doesn't mean that's the path we should go we need to go another direction 
much like the, I feel like the network effect. So there's a belief um, in the world of, of virtuality. In order to have a really powerful ecosystem um, for uh, virtuality users, you need say 10 million users. And there's a network effect that once you achieve that amount, then it becomes a valuable system, right? So you're talking about these qubits, you really need upwards of a million to actually have some sort of network effect or some sort of ability to then have it be highly useful in a bunch of different areas or? Um, well, yeah, because the the information in a, in a quantum system grows exponentially with the system size. Mm-hmm. And so you're looking for a threshold where it's, you have so much information in those entanglement relationships that you beat a classical computer. Um, and, and actually, theoretically, you only need 50 or 60 qubits to beat a classical computer if they didn't decohere at all, if there was no noise. Mm-hmm. Uh, but once you add noise in there, then you, uh, you know, about a, a million is where you pass the threshold. Google already this, uh, you know, in the past year, uh, last October, they uh, announced a quantum supremacy result, and quantum su- supremacy is when you have a quantum computer that can beat a classical computer. Uh, but the problem is they only were able to do it on a problem that could be run very quickly, so that a problem that wasn't very useful. Uh, but that's still an important milestone to show that, like, really quantum computers can beat classical computers. We just have to make them big enough where they can do that for something useful now. Oh, so it's interesting. It's almost much like with... Um artificial intelligence right they you know watson beat the the guy at jeopardy right and then they beat someone of the chest and then they got into the realm of go right and then they started having uh the the computer the artificial intelligence that actually beat the best go player and he lost to some of the other go players or whatever and so what they did is create alpha go where they played against each other and that's what allowed them to kind of level up to a level of usefulness but it becomes it's a very specific intelligence versus what we all hope and want is a general intelligence system that actually adds mass value which is just you know so um, um much higher difficulty to actually get to so what are the levels if, if you were to say okay it first beats someone at this very small test uh, the, uh, the classical computer versus quantum computer there is a the test that they ran which sounds like it's like some sort of computation on a very small level what would be the next couple tests that would go beyond that to say okay it's 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 moving it's leveling up past the levels of effectiveness to actually beat a classic computer yeah, well, uh, there's definitely a lot of people who are looking into the area of the, like the near-term uh, applications that you can do with these sort of small, noisy quantum computers that we have today. Um, and a lot of those applications center around, uh, you know, like I mentioned before, um, calculating the properties of, of chemicals and materials in order to do things like design new drugs or mm-hmm. new materials for energy or uh, food production or things like that. That's the area where people think that you'll find the most near-term applications. So I have a friend who uh, runs a company that does, um, works with pharmacies and virtual reality. So they have, they put on VR headsets and they get all these molecules, right? And they're all designing things and they combine it with um, blockchain, right? And so what they're doing is they're designing these different molecules. And if somebody actually finds the right molecule that is effective, then they can trace back through blockchain theory and go, oh, Bob on Tuesday at seven o'clock made this design of this molecule and that design actually is going to have a practical effect on the pharmaceutical industry. And so he now has a, a, a vested interest in solving this. Is there any way that you could see the synergy of these types of technologies weaving together with quantum computers? Like, is there a stacked effect? Oh, definitely. It's not like quantum is going to come in and replace everything that everybody else is already doing. Because what quantum does is it allows you to more accurately tell what this molecule that I 
came up with will actually do in the real body without having to go through as much of the step to build it. So it allows you to narrow down what's the stuff I should try to actually make. Um, but still all of the processes for how you come up with your candidates and how you narrow them down, all that stuff still has to happen. The quantum computer just makes it all more accurate and you know powers it up. Interesting. So is it so if somebody was to say test the molecule, okay, okay, this is something that could be effective, then they would hand it off to the quantum computer that it could then run. Yeah, it'll give you a better prediction of what it will do, and then you still got to make the thing and see if it works. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Is there any other ways that you see a synergistic relationship with these other emerging and immersive technologies like? blockchain, virtual reality, artificial intelligence, Internet of Things. Can you see out the future of, you know, the Henry Fords of the emerging technologies working together in a relationship with? Well, it's always really to make hard to make predictions like sure. this because the technology is so new. Uh, but there's definitely uh, synergies with blockchain because, uh, you know, blockchain depends on RSA mm -hmm. uh, for, for cryptography and quantum computers will be able to break RSA. Can you explain um, what RSA is? Yeah. Uh, RSA is a... Uh, I think that's the... RSA is the initials of some guys who came up with it. But it's, a, it's an algorithm... Uh, for for public key encryption, so the, the way it works is that you have a math problem that's really easy to do one way and hard mm -hmm. to do the other way, which is prime factors. So if you take two prime numbers and multiply them together, that's easy. But if I give you a number and ask you to find the fine prime factors of that number, that's a hard problem. Mm -hmm. uh, so your your private key is the prime factors, and you use that to decrypt the information, and the public key is the multiple of the two prime factors, and you use that to encrypt the information. So if I want somebody to give me information, I'll give you the public key, you encrypt the data, you send it to me, and I decrypt it with the, with the private key. That's, that's interesting. It, there, I feel like there's a corollary there with that and quantum entanglement, how it's easy to lock it in the beginning, but then trying to go backwards, you, you need to have that key. Am I on arc or am I missing? I feel like there's a corollary there, but I'm not too sure. Mm, I'd have to think about that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, not 100% sure either. Just uh, diving through this with you. Um, now, um, let me ask you this. In terms of mentorships, uh, advisors, uh, have there been people along the path that have helped guide you and, and to you? Who have you followed? And, you know, what insights or lessons or stories have you, have you gleaned from them that you've been able to apply into your own um, journey of discovery? Well, I think the difficult part about, um, you know, being in a new field is that you have to find some advisors from some different areas that all touch on your field, <laughs> right? Uh, so, uh, you know, I've had some great science advisors over the years, and then I've also got my, uh, you know, business type advisors, which is a totally different world. 100%. Uh, so, you know, one of the official advisors of, of our company is Michael Harris, who's a VC at the Robotics Hub. Mm -hmm. um, and we definitely look for, you know, business advisors who have experience with uh, hardware, because uh -huh. it's, a, it's a really heavy tech area. Um, and, you know, there's a whole lot of things you have to know about uh, how to get customers. This is definitely a B2E type sales where you have big, you know, contracts that take a while to um, develop. And, uh, you know, it's not like a software startup at all. Uh, and, you know, definitely uh, 
you know, the experience that we've had in incubators, a lot of that is more tuned towards software startups that have shorter sales cycles. Sure. Uh, so, you know, different people with experience with heavy tech companies. Yeah, and I know that with a lot of the emerging techs and getting in, you know, ahead of the um, wave of development is uh, working on things hot now are going to be cold later. Working on things hard now are going to be hot later. Yeah. It's just how far ahead of the wave are you, right? And often, you know, in, in my emerging technology space, you know, I've always felt like you're building a, you know, a town in the desert, being like the trains are coming, the trains are coming, but you have to have faith while you're building out that town and get everything ready. So, from what I'm understanding, is that mentors in the quantum field are a bit sparse because they're they're not. Um, it's more of a theoretical philosophy, so it's more opinions-based, so you're just really taking on the assumptions and opinions of these mentors versus the hard science facts of proven track record? Well, I think it's more about the fact that you have something that's going from a basic science to applied science, and mm -hmm. there's not a lot of people who have experience with applied stuff in this area. And so, you know, some of the people I get advice from are hardcore scientists who think a business is ridiculous. <laughs> And then I have to go get my business advice from different people. It's not like I can find a great advisor for, you know, a quantum business out there. <laughs> it's super difficult. I could only imagine how challenging that would be to be able to find, especially if they got into the field for the passion of the philosophy and you're trying to turn it into a business. It almost seems like heresy. Yes, right? for sure. And so, definitely in that field, I'm a little reluctant sometimes yeah. to tell people <laughs> that I have a business. <laughs> Let's just talk about the theory of things and see if there's a practical, tactical application. Uh, with that, I've always viewed like people's operating systems as, you know, there's you're you're inheriting certain operating systems from mentors, from advisors, from other people's, but they're, you know, Windows 98 versus Windows 2000, and so you know there might be certain things that they have that are stable that work well, but then there's also certain glitches or viruses or systems that they have that you don't want to adopt. So how do you how do you parse out the the good information that an advisor gives you versus um, oh well this is actually just a part of um, um, kind of outdated software. I you know, I honestly think that's the job of any CEO of any company. You get a lot of advice from different people. And I would say that's especially true of investors who you might just have a brief conversation with, but they always love to give you advice. Uh, but, you know, you're the one who knows your company deeply and your field deeply, and you're the one who has to make the decision. And I think the best way to go about that is to get advice from a lot of people and, uh, you know, try to really understand it. And, you know, if they tell you do this, ask them why and make sure you understand why they're giving you that advice and then in the end you just have to decide you know it's it's not a it's not a hard fast answer again it goes it goes back to that um art versus science of so it sounds like you're saying take a large sample set of data take <laughs> yes. it take it all in and be able to look at all that data and go from that and say okay I'm gonna make a gut decision, right? You can't you can't weigh it out, you can't graph it, you can't put it on a thing and say, okay, well, 57% of the investors say this. And yes, you're right, investors all have a very strong opinion <laughs> of exactly what you should do, and they are completely right because they have an inherent bias because they've been successful in the past in some way, shape, or form. It may not apply directly to your field, but because they've been so successful, they have a strong mental model for them of what works, even though it may not work for you. Yeah. Yeah. Well, besides just doing the gut check, is there any questions you ask yourself? Is there any 
you know, um, things that you go through, you have to say, I need to make this decision. Do you, after taking a large sample set and you go with your gut, is there a luminary in the in-between phase of that, of how you do that? Do you go and meditate under, meditate under a tree for 40 days and 40 nights? Do you, um, you know, uh, is there some steps or questions that you go through? How do you, how do you get more clarity around a gut decision? Well, I think the other thing that's really important is to, um, know yourself well and to know what you're good at and where you can really bring value um you know one of the things i know about myself after you know living in this body for 40 years uh is that i can do really great work but i do it slowly and so the best way that i can create value is to take those really difficult challenging problems um and then work on them at my own pace and not be bothered by people who come in and say no you're you're doing that too slow and that, that's actually a problem in both the science world and the investor world because investors want you to make a ton of money tomorrow and <laughs> scientists want you to publish 20 papers tomorrow <laughs> uh, but you know i i do big things uh on on my own pace and i know that works for me so it sounds like you have a, a really good um one understanding of yourself and really the value you bring but also you have a long time horizon of a long-term game right versus everybody wants a quick roi everybody wants that turnaround every because we, we we all want the effect but we don't want the effort right we all want that free lunch because it's because we're inherently lazy as humans right we, <laughs> i want my roi tomorrow i want my paper tomorrow i want these things um where did you get the mindset and knowledge and faith and overall mental model of having that long time horizon of this is who i am and this is how long it's going to take and then being comfortable with that I think uh, I just like hard problems. Like, I think it's really fun to solve a hard problem. Um, and, you know, if you solve it in a day or a week or a year, that's boring. <laughs> yeah. Do you have some examples of solving hard problems in the area, how you felt like you maybe couldn't have done it, and then how you've been able to build that confidence over time? Um, you know, I would say the other thing about me is that uh, I have a really good intuition, which I think is more of my engineer side. Um, and physicists find that uh, a bit weird uncomfortable um definitely in my physics career there's been a number of times where i just i know there's something interesting about this system so let's keep making measurements until we find something there's multiple times where people told me i'm barking up the wrong tree and then two years later i have some fascinating data set that you know gets published in a high quality journal nice so you've been able to build confidence in your ability to know that you're on the right path and to to kind of delay those gratifications because a lot of time with entrepreneurship it's very different than a typical job that clock in clock out immediate feedback paycheck there you go there is a time horizon of entrepreneurship over it's going to take me a long time so you have to delay your gratification over an extended period of time so like how do you, on a, is it on a, on a daily basis or a weekly basis, are there any types of mental buffs or physical buffs you do to kind of keep that sane balance and confidence so you don't have that typical entrepreneur, oh my God, rip my hair out, I need to make this thing happen right now? Is there something that you do to armor up? Oh, I mean, you know, there we get sort of into the sort of personal care things. Yeah, there's lots of stuff. I mean, I I do my probiotics and I pay a lot of attention to my sleep and I I meditate and I go to church and I, you know, make sure I have good relationships that uh, support me and I make sure I have other things going on in my life where I can get some more of that shorter term uh, pleasure from. Uh, I also like to play games where you like kick people's butts. (laughs) 
Ah, Shatterfreud <laughs> yes. is a, the German terminology Shatterfreud is a gaming terminology that means the pleasure from harming others, right? <laughs> well, you know, it's sometimes virtual others. Right? 100%. What games do you play? I like to get that winning. Uh, I like to play WoW and Grappolis, uh, yeah, yeah. which is, you know, those aren't like the coolest games. Uh, but Grappolis is kind of fun because you get to battle other actual other people. I'm not familiar with Grappolis. It's like an online, you know. Sort of like uh, Age of Empires, but uh, you're playing other people. <laughs> What's your character type in WoW? Um, I, I actually like to, uh, you know, I like to play both male and female characters. The WoW's kind of fun because you get to be a variety of people, right? Yeah. I got a hunter and a druid. and Druids are fun. You get those uh, pets. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so with that, I mean, how do you think, I mean, game of life, the game of business, the game of science... How do you think it applies if you were to do it with WoW? Are there any terminologies and things that, that you can see in the world of WoW and how it crossovers to that area? Um, for example, I had a, a, a friend on the last podcast, Ben, and one of his abilities is to be able to throw himself into highly dangerous areas, uh, Leroy Jenkins style, where he would actually go into a difficult area and kite around high-powered monsters in life. And he'd just jump in headfirst and then run around just trying to figure things out, hoping not to get mobbed on, and then just go, okay, I'm going to figure this out. And that gave him faith over time. Are there any corollaries that you can tell from WoW and how it applies to either business, science, or technology? Well, you know, the difference is that uh, with WoW, you, 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 you know, you just spend some gold and, like, uh, you know, fix all your equipment, right? You can't do that in real life, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, but I, I, you know, I have the mentality to just wade in and try stuff out and, uh, you know, deal with the consequences later. I think that's the most important uh, part of succeeding in an area that's new. So you'd say that the ability to just have patience and keep on the grind over time? Yeah, is, is and that, also not to be afraid to try new and wild stuff. Yeah. When you get that, you know, because we all have mental models and voices in our heads that play games with us. So as you go to try this thing, and you know it's hard, you know it's difficult, you're receiving a lot of pressure from it. Is there a is there a story you're telling yourself? Is there something going on in that default mode network of your brain? Is there something that's happening that allows you to check that that, you know, scared self that you know that anxious monkey or any other things that you're be able to, able to calm it down to say okay no i know this and i'm gonna move forward anyways well um i i think sort of uh one thing i always do is i always have my backup plan in mm-hmm. my mind uh and you know my backup plan is to become an engineering professor uh-huh. uh and i you know i like to teach and and this is an area you know quantum is a new area where i can teach and so um, having a backup plan in your mind where you can say that allows you to be braver in in what you do otherwise to just feel like you'll be okay right you're you're not like risking everything it's not like you're going to be homeless and on the street tomorrow right? having a backup plan is great and it's also one of those things that people are very much afraid in so many conditions where if this thing goes wrong if i fail it then goes and then i die um, I'm foolish online, and then people can make fun of me. I'll get ostracized in my group, and then I die. I make a fail in my business. I run out of money, and then I die. And so it sounds like you have the ability to say, look, I have a backup plan. Even if this all goes and gets caught on fire, I'm not going to die. I'm going to be okay, and it's all it's all fine. Yeah. I mean, I'll definitely feel sad if things <laughs> go south. Uh, because, you know, you invest so much of your time. You invest years in, into something. You definitely want it to work out. 
Uh, but yeah, I don't feel like I'll die if it doesn't work out. I'll yeah. just be really sad. <laughs> <laughs> you'll, you'll survive from that. Usually those, those uh, most painful lessons are the ones that you remember and usually turn around to be like the most benefit. Is there, has there been times that in, in business or in, in this, in the technology space where you felt like you died, you felt like, oh my God, I am, this is over. It's kaput. I'm never going to make it again. And then you were able to from that, uh, be reborn, the death of your ego, achieve and come past that? Uh, well, I would say that happens about every three to six months <laughs> when you're doing a startup. <laughs> yeah. A hundred percent. Yeah. There is, there is so many things that happen that, you know, that make you reflect back, but do you have a, a specific incident that you can recall that, um, might have an impact a, a lesson or a story that someone can look at and make a corollary with their own life? Hmm. Yeah, it's hard. I'd have to think about that for a bit. I'd uh, put you on the spot with that one. Yeah. That's fair. Well, what about this? Um, let's just say it all happens, right? You're able to make this uh, Dell of quantum computing. You, you've built it out and you've made a successful business and you've been able to achieve that um, holy grail, if you would, of this um, uh, uh, no, no loss of this state. Um, you know, what would you want to do to come full circle around and like, and like be a mentor or um, what after that and you go back to your community what does that look like for you well honestly uh, I would sort of like to get into education either way and if I mm. had a bunch of money in a company then I would maybe sort of start my own organization uh, instead of just go be a professor somewhere um, because I, I really think that uh, you know there's some structural problems in academia that uh, which is sort of like what we're talking about right now, that only people who work really fast are, are sort of like fit into that mold and, and are successful. Um, and I, I really think a place where um, where you sort of uh, combine my passions, where you like do some really practical things to make money and then you, you spend some of your time on some, you know, really off the wall stuff that might take years. Sure. Um, you know, I would like to see more places like that for scientists. Um, I think, you know, there was an article in The Atlantic last year about how the quality of Nobel Prize winning science has degraded over the past really? 50 years. Um, and I, I really think that's because there's not a lot of places in academia these days for the slow thinkers. Mm. Uh, Peter Ware Higgs, who came up with the Higgs boson uh, that, you know, was sort of recently they found some confirmatory evidence and won a Nobel Prize for it. He, he said he never would have survived in today's world. He doesn't publish enough papers. Can you explain what the Higgs boson is? Um, oh, that is so not my feelings. Okay. okay. So. <laughs> I, um, I've heard it might be the God particle or something about that. It's the origins of the Big Bang or something like that used it, with the Large it, Hadron it Collider. Gives, it gives mass to all the other particles. <laughs> 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 you you get some mass and you get some mass and you get some. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. So you'd make almost like the school of quantum education, a place where people can come, uh, have a slow burn moonshot programs, as well as taking those things and enrolling those into an applied science. I, it's sort of I feel like the the new Bell Labs, you know, because mm. uh, I, I feel like a place where you, uh, you know, you have. Uh, something you're trying to do, something practical you're trying to do, but you also have some uh, people who, you know, just 
sit in their office and thinks. And, uh, you know, I read a book on Bell Labs recently, and it was really fascinating. And I think one of the things that I really thought was amazing about it is they recognized that there were different types of scientists. And, you know, some of them would come up with tons of stuff. And then uh, others of them might never come up with anything on their own. But they were really helpful in having conversations with other people that helped them. Right. There was just a lot of different types of people there. And I feel like... uh, you know, scientists are all supposed to be the same person these yeah. days. You know, they're all supposed to publish X many papers a year. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's almost like maybe think of a, a dungeon party, how you have support roles and you have tanks and you have people in the front and you have wizards that sit yeah. back and think. In order really to get effective to get through that dungeon, you actually have to have all these unique personality sets. You know, somebody that is more of a support role that kind of fills everybody up, someone else that takes the lead and there's more of a thinker in the background. I mean, do you, can you think of like the different types of archetypes that would be would consist of a, a good team or quantum team of people that would come together? That would, if you could build out your perfect team, do you know what that might look like for you? <laughs> well, I don't know about building my different uh, my team, but uh, you know, like I know some some scientists who are really good at you know just being interested in a lot of different things, and they mm-hmm. can have a conversation with anybody in almost any different field, and you know, really bring value to that thing, you like come up with ideas that that person had never thought of, you know, they're sort of the, uh, broad types and then other people are, you know, really focused on one subject and, uh, can really do deep work there over years. Um, yeah, I'd have to think about what all the different (laughs) archetypes are, but yeah, there's just, you know, uh, sort of like before I got into the business world, I just thought investors were all the same type, but there's actually a whole lot of different types of them. It's the same with scientists. There's a whole bunch of different types of scientists. hundred percent. Yeah, I have always, uh, uh, with our mutual friend, Michel Haddad, um, I've always considered him to be like the warrior scientist. He will run up and get in your face and he will find that data out and he will take those hits and he will keep coming. He'll be the front line of the scientist and he gets that data back and makes that iteration happen while other people are more passive. You know, oh, so, yeah. so that- there's, there's definitely the uh, split like that in science too. You know, you, you have some people who just jump right in with the experiment and just try stuff and then other people sit back and very carefully plan things. And both of those things are needed. It's not like one is better than the other. Yeah. Um, final question for you on this is um, what messages or, you know, what would you give an advice to a, a young adventurer who's starting out in the field of quantum? They want to get started. They don't know how. They don't know where to go or what to do. Um, what advice, what direction would you point them in to get them started? Um, so the first thing I'd say is to uh, not let yourself get intimidated when you don't understand something because it's a difficult field that even people who've been working in the field for decades, um, there's parts of it they don't understand. Um, so, you know, don't get intimidated. And then I, I think the other thing with the difficult field is, uh, you know, you sort of want to learn it over and over and over again. Uh, and you know, this is what happens in school. It's like you have a class that introduces you to the idea of this topic, and then a year later you got another class on that topic, and then a year later you got a mm. more advanced class on that topic. You really have to do do that with quantum. And luckily, there's a whole bunch of opportunities for people who want to learn quantum because you know a lot of companies like IBM and D-Wave have their quantum computers online uh, in places where uh, you know anybody can log on and play with IBM's quantum computer. Uh, 
So just go for it. That's beautiful. So it's like a, it's a journey, you know, 101 level up, 201 level up. You got to keep going back and revisiting those concepts and getting a little further on your on the philosophy, on the concepts, and on the thoughts in order to kind of, you know, kind of get yourself acclimated to the industry. Yeah, that's beautiful. And um, how would someone reach out to you if they want to contact you, reach out to you, and talk to you more about this? How would they get hold of you? Raina at AuroraQ.com. Beautiful. Thank you, Raina. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you being on. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you have any comments, suggestions, or feedback on how to improve the podcast, I would cherish that. Please give me an email or shout out at Dylan at heroesofreality.com. That's D-Y-L-A-N at heroesofreality.com. Stay strong, young adventures. Until next time.